Life is hard. After all, it kills you. Catherine Hepburn Chapter 23 October in Los Angeles usually begins hot and cools toward Halloween. I started rising just before dawn in the weeks before our departure for London. I would eat an apple, have a glass of water, pull on a pair of old sweats, lace up some running shoes, and walk or run for an hour or an hour and a half then returned to have breakfast with Jake. When I locked the door behind me early in the morning, the sky would flare with intense violets, pinks, and corals against porcelain blue. The streets of Beverly Hills, unlike the streets of the Hollywood Hills, were nearly empty. One morning, I saw a woman of about 70 with the poise and stance of a dancer, shining long silver hair side-parted like Veronica Lake, probably just as it had been when she was a teenager in the 40s. She was wearing surfing jams, vans, and a moth-eaten Angora sweater. She was walking her very large, very shaggy dogs. It was an hour later when I started to see more humans as opposed to, say, squirrels. These humans were mostly getting into cars, looking distracted, toting insulated cups to balance in the console of their upscale autos. I infinitely preferred the stately, solitary walker with her dogs. The more I walked, the more I became aware of the sense of an inhabited morning, frying bacon, the width of the first cigarette of the day, brewing coffee. The more I walked, the more I noticed a rhythm of greeting after the first nearly silent hour. There was the elderly Iranian gentleman who spoke no English, out for a constitutional who touched his cap, the joggers, faces slick with perspiration who would smile and nod, the people meandering after their sniffing dogs who would say a surprised hello at seeing me, as if I had stumbled into their living room instead of come across them moseying down the sidewalk. Especially notable were the beaming bottle blondes in their fifties, sporting pastel tracksuits and full makeup singing out, Good morning, a legion of peppy Doris days. I began to feel more a part of the city, my street, my neighborhood, and started putting together faces and houses. Fifteen years in Los Angeles, and what made me feel connected here, finally, wasn't my job or my family or even my friends. What made me feel connected were strangers, happy to be alive and outside on another sunny California day just like generations before them and generations to come. And then I left. I got on a plane one night at LAX with Darla, and we arrived at Heathrow in London sometime after lunch. For me, it was, well, it was like arriving on another planet, one hell of a misty gray muted planet. Leaning to see out of a boxy black cab's windows, I saw the sky was lowering. The buildings, rows and rows of them, were predominantly brick or Portland stone. Moisture was beating on the taxi's glass, washing the city into aquatint, and the leaves were falling, setting blackened branches silhouetted against tarnished silver clouds. 
dressed in layers of cream and flax and beige, with a soft scarf draped over her head and gathered loosely under her chin, Darla sat very still and very pale in the cab. She didn't speak, and from time to time she would close her eyes as if the gray weather was too much to witness. I reached for her hand. It was chilly. I took both of Darla's hands in mine to warm them. Darla, she opened her eyes. You know, sitting like that, you look like one of those Flemish nuns from a 17th century portrait. Darla smiled. I was a bit cold. She gave me a look. A Flemish nun? And we're off to the Abbey, are we? Ah, so that would make your mom and dad mother superior and father superior. That's it, a wild Bacchanalian sect, making me baby superior, all swaddled up and ready to go. I smiled. She smiled. You're quite off your head, you know. Darla's parents lived in a northern borough named Hampstead on an avenue past an old churchyard where sooty stone angels stood behind an iron fence. An adjoining lane had grand homes flanked by high walls, and then we turned onto a curved street called Chesterford Gardens. Tall Victorian semi-detached houses stretched around the bend, and we stopped in front in front of one with a glossy forest green door with two narrow side lights on either side. This was our destination. Through some inheritance laws peculiar to the British Isles, the four-story, ten-bedroom home had come into the possession of Darla's mother. Cousins, maiden aunts, or, I don't know, bachelor uncles, had kept it all in the very extended family. Darla's parents were two architects who were in the process of revising plans to convert the behemoth into two spacious flats. When Darla and I arrived, the ground floor and the first floor were lovely. There were high-ceilinged spaces looking out over a city garden, fireplaces and bedrooms that were once reception rooms, and a kitchen that kept the original footprint with smart updates. Upstairs was another thing entirely. When we took the tour, it looked as if the builders had lain down their tools, draped everything with drop cloth, and run off. We can't have all that noise and bother while you're home, said Darla's mother. I don't think I'll be here much, said Darla. Darla's parents, who insisted I call them Kathleen and Walt, plied us with biscuits and tea. I had the distinct impression we had fallen into a pattern established when Darla was a schoolgirl, home for the holidays. Cosseted isn't a word or a state of being I had much experience with. In the first week I spent in London, that changed. Walt and Kathleen took us to see comedian Eddie Izzard at the Shaftesbury and Peter Pan at the Cambridge Theatre. We toured Sir John Soane's home, an upright Anglican hymn to Greco-Roman symmetry, from the architect who designed the Bank of England. We spent evenings with Brahms playing in the background, and I was introduced to the odd puns and cryptic clues of British crossword puzzles. Pampered? It wasn't uncommon to find a hot water bottle at our toes when we climbed into bed. One night, under a down quilt, drowsing just before sleep, I looked up to see a bedside lamp still glowing across the hall in Darla's room. Kathleen was sitting on the edge of the bed, talking softly, the way mothers do her hands smoothing the bedding that covered her daughter. And I knew, instantly, 
that Walt and Kathleen believed that once Darla entered the hospital, she was lost. The same thought must have been bothering Darla, for the builders didn't return to finish the project until two and a half years later. Darla started to refuse treatment after her second round of chemotherapy. Or in her words, lads, I'll take quality of life, and by that I mean not retching up bile and gall 24 hours a day over longevity in a heartbeat. And my doctors can shove their poison straight back where the sun doesn't shine. Besides, the Benedictines got Hampstead going as a health resort, and I intend to see exactly what they were going on about. She lived 26 months past the day of diagnosis and spent those days mostly at her parents and in the weekend company of her older brothers, their wives, and her nieces and nephews. I saw her 10 times over the course of those two years. If you're wondering how I could have gotten away so often, the studio had a splashy space epic filming at Pinewood. I interspersed meetings with accountants and creatives with visits to Chesterford Gardens. Darla got steadily thinner, paler, and less energetic. On one of my later stops, her weight loss was staggering, her skin turning dry and papery and ghostly. She wanted to go out to an extraordinary meal in town, so I made reservations at a place called St. John's, and we went off in a taxi dressed to the nines. Darla pushed a wheeled IV that dripped something painkilling into her bloodstream that made her eyes hooded and caused her speech to emerge with an unfamiliar deliberation, as if each word had a weight, like a gold bar, that needed to be laboriously lifted into the air. And this is among the many reasons I came to love London. The maitre d' placed us at the most beautiful table. The service was quiet, decorous, and subtle. To this day, I remember the light in the room and the half-smile that played at Darla's lips through the night. Yes, Darla's animating spark was banked down deep. It was not to be extinguished by frailty or pain. What flashed and glimmered through her illness was ignited by a hellion's verve. She lit cigarettes in defiance of her mother's glare with a slow, carefully enunciated, Ma, it's not like it's going to kill me now, is it? Toward the end, her eldest brother said she slept more and more until finally, at Darla's request, he called me in Los Angeles and I returned to London one last time. I remember I was reading the long goodbye in bed when I got the call. Funny how things stick in your head. It was about 10 at night in Los Angeles, which would have made it 6 in the morning in London. This was the line I had just read. Ordinarily, I was not a morning drinker. The Southern California climate is too soft for it. You don't metabolize fast enough. Me? At that point, it never had occurred to me to drink in the morning. There have been times when I wished I could feel some kind of release in alcohol, but I don't. But then there was the period when I was dealing a lot with death, the slow dying of somebody I loved. And there were long nights I spent bedside in the ICU at the Royal Free Hospital, catching five-minute naps and feeding on cups of baby food, strained apricots, that the nurses would hand me at two in the morning. 
I would hear the soft steps of the staff, the hum of the air purifiers, and sometimes Darla, curled on her side in a hospital bed, asleep. Or something deeper than that. It seemed to me like she was traveling, walking through time without moving. Sometimes she called for her mother in the voice of a seven-year-old. Once she beckoned to someone with her eyes closed, dreaming, a twitch in the hand cupped by her face, her voice full and quiet. Would you look at that? In an instant, she sent me back to the patio in our backyard on a starry night in January, where we lay bundled in coats, talking about home, not a place, a person. When I would return to Chesterford Gardens, the sky growing light and Darla's parents going to the hospital, the time would come when I should have been asleep, and then I would go to their freezer and pull out a bottle of vodka and pour myself a clear syrupy shot and down it in one, and still I would lie in bed and listen, waiting as the sun rose. Maybe it was my metabolism, or maybe when death demands your attention, there's nothing on earth that will silence it. She rallied for a bit, and then Darla went home. Hell no, I'm not ready for the hereafter. I remember her saying that. So she went back to her room and to the house full of her family, and she died two days after Christmas, having not opened her eyes for 48 hours, cradled in her mother's arms. The hereafter. The here and now seems an infinity enough, but then I was never very philosophical. Darla would have liked to have been buried next to Eliza with the unpronounceable last name, who was Jane Austen's cousin and inspiration, in the Church Row Cemetery. The Anglican church there, however, had been receiving earthly remains for over 200 years, and plots were no longer available. So room for her final repose was found in Highgate Cemetery. Darla would certainly have been thrilled to know her last resting place was a celebrity graveyard of sorts, even more so that her neighbors included favorite writers such as Stella Gibbons and Douglas Adams, though probably less so Karl Marx. Of course, she would have been even more thrilled not to be dead. The quipster was laid to rest with kindred spirits, and I returned to Los Angeles. In the time that had passed since my first trip abroad, Jake had become a lanky teenager with an aptitude for science and basketball. Mr. Booker still ran the household with an eye toward consistency, constancy, and enlightenment. A computer with a dial-up access sat on the kitchen counter next to the phone jack. Books arrived in the post with smooth regularity from Amazon. A 10x telescope was set up in the backyard, and the net had been removed from the tennis court on our rarefied acre and a basketball hoop installed. Bob Brown, on the cusp of retirement, secretly confided to me before my London departure that I, and another of his trusted female lieutenants, were next in line to run the studio. The thought filled me with apprehension, but I knew where my duty lay and decided to meet my fate in whatever shape it appeared head on. After passing through customs in the Bradley Terminal Building at LAX after flying home from the funeral, I expected to be met by a driver and a company car. I looked around for someone holding a large white card in front of a black suit jacket that said 
Taylor, but instead I spotted Cooper Daniels. You could, as the saying goes, have knocked me over with a feather. He walked toward me, casually gave me a kiss on the forehead, hey Billy, and took the carry-on from my hand, the rolling bag from my grasp, and started to walk away. I followed after him, and we talked in that cautious yet curiously bonded, that curiously bonded way old friends have when they've been out of touch. We both were watching the crowds as searching passengers were met with tearful reunions or ecstatic hugs. They filled my vision. All those people were so beautiful, so vital. Cooper stopped, waited, and then before I knew it, we were out in the parking lot, the brilliant afternoon sun glinting off a sea of cars. The glare made me shield my eyes, and bright, horribly white dots danced in my field of vision. Cooper loaded my bags into the trunk of a big-ass BMW, came around to the passenger door, peered at my face, and then wiped my cheeks. You're crying. Am I? I hadn't noticed. Then the ache in my throat became intolerable, and I gasped, and tears blurred my vision, which is how I found myself pressed against Cooper, his hand sheltering my head against his chest, his palm covering my eyes. The sun blotted out, standing on asphalt, with the blazing blue sky above. Death and Cupid are not the most graceful of dance partners. Cooper and I let our conversation roam over many months' worth of stored-up experiences as he drove to Beverly Hills, and we never once intersected where emotion was concerned. We were confiding, endearing, full of laughter, and yet somewhat reserved. As we pulled up to the house, Cooper said, Okay, Chief, you know, I, it seemed something was stuck in his craw. Yes? He mumbled, I love you, and then clearly stated, And you know, I'm going to New Zealand for 12 months. You're going to... I tried to retrieve something from the fog of grief, and bless my memory, I did. Oh, I remember, the green light. Cooper squeezed my hand. Good for you. Cooper Daniels' pet project had to do with a doomed polar expedition of the late 19th century that would require his presence on the other side of the world and his undivided attention. It was going to be a logistical feat for the studio, and I had been briefed about it by phone in our London office, but it had completely slipped my mind, which, considering the circumstances, was completely unsurprising. Wow. I smiled. I kissed Cooper's cheek. Good, I repeated, realizing that when we were the most easy with each other, one or both of us was romantically unavailable. Either we were involved with other people or we had obligations that kept us at a distance. In this particular instance, I had been instrumental in engineering his departure for the Southern Hemisphere. I should have remembered. Sylvie's going to love it there, Cooper said. I bet she will. And I'm sorry it's coming. He observed the well-tended home, the perfectly pruned garden, the immaculately painted facade, and me sitting beside him, both exhausted and buzzing. I'm sorry this movie's at such a bad time for you. I would stay here if I could. You know that, right? I know. 
Cooper nudged my shoulder. Come on. We got out of the car and I glanced up and down the wide avenue where spacious homes were set back from the street and from each other. Cooper took my luggage from the trunk. I love you too, Coop, and, and I'll see you next year, I said. I was anxious to walk inside and see my boy be surrounded by my own walls. Even with our rediscovered accord, our chummy almost intimacy, it was probably best not to tell him that I dreamed something that I hadn't forgotten, which for me was very unusual. Sleeping on the plane out of London, my thoughts were full of Cooper. Death-sparking thoughts of regeneration. Okay, okay, sex, thoughts of sex. It happens. In the dream, Cooper met me at his office on the lot. He had a surprise for me. He'd had gender reassignment surgery. Now, it wasn't the kind of surprise I would have expected if I knew he was going to surprise me, not even in a dream. And what was worse, he was dressed better than me. He had on the sweetest blue outfit. The ensemble included a full skirt, a prim sweater set, and pearls that didn't quite camouflage a prominent Adam's apple. All this was topped with a shoulder-length auburn wig. It was kind of gorgeous, in a sculpted way, which was exactly how he was pre-surgery. When the formerly he director told me that now she was a director, I flung my arms around Mrs. Daniels for a big hug and said, Congratulations, you were always so nurturing. Even asleep, I knew that was an iffy statement. Nurturing? That's not generally how one thought of Daniels. She swept her arm into the air to indicate the wall of her office as if to prove me wrong. And where once hung black and white examples of her short days as a photojournalist, there hung a series of infants in jewel-toned costumes, dressed as pumpkins, Christmas elves, and fat summer bumblebees. What the hell? Yet, what really concerned me in the dream was if the gender transformation would quell Cooper's desire for me. Billy... Why are you looking at me like that? You could come to New Zealand. He suggested holding onto my bag and not releasing it when I reached for it. Maybe my dream was prophetic after all. He really did seem unusually concerned about me and almost intolerably sympathetic. I tried to smile and was thinking, I wouldn't mind going with you at all. When what I said was, I cannot go to New Zealand, Cooper. Cooper? What do you think of dreams? You mean like the kind at night, cognitively? Or you're talking some cockeyed interpretation crap? Ha, huh. thank you. I have my answer. Anything for you, Chief, he said, waving and climbing into the car. I stood watching him go down the drive past the camellias and turned to see the house my late husband had bought and wondered briefly if it wasn't time to move on. Kids hate to move, I reminded myself. And that, for the time being, was that. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.